Hi everyone, your God Emperor Will here. My co-host Luke would be deeply upset with me if I didn't remind you about the Michael and Us Patreon. We have a whole extra episode every week for the low, low price of five Yankee dollars per month. Our Patreon-exclusive episodes have covered subjects ranging from Louis Manuel's Lage d'Or to the Kids in the Hall film Brain Candy to recent stand-up specials by the likes of Ricky Gervais and Bill Maher. You'll find it all and much more at patreon.com slash michaelandus. This land is your land. This land is my land. I'm a Texas tiger. You're a liberal wiener. I'm a great crusader. You're a Herman Munster. This land will surely vote for me. This land is your land. This land is my land. I'm an intellectual. You're a stupid dumbass. I'm a Purple Heart winner. And yes, it's true, I won it thrice. This land will surely vote for me. From the heart, they are doing an astonishing job. If you can't dig it, push the fuck off. Hashtag Biden-Harris. Republican or Democrat, F with Biden and Harris, and you are dead to me. Hashtag vote blue. The media, the bros, and the fascists will find any reason to drag him and selectively forget the insane nightmare of 45 and Republicans. When you do the why should I vote thing, understand you are disrespecting the backbone of America. Black women. They've saved us again and again. Funny how you didn't believe at Facebook and at Fox News like you and your family did. Maybe you could learn something. Hashtag vote blue. Hashtag K-Hive. Well, it's very flattering uh, that you decided to begin the show this week by reading some of my tweets. Thanks for that. How dare you? Those are actually my tweets. I know that you're always trying to claim credit for my intellectual property. Folks, welcome back to Michael and Us. I'm Luke Savage. I'm Will Sloan, and I am actually reading from the Twitter account of my favorite public intellectual, Greg Proops. <laughs> this is something Will and I uh, periodically do. We check in on our old pal, Greg Proops, <laughs> formerly of uh, Whose Line Is It Anyway fame. Um, and he's got some thoughts about politics today and, and every day. Hit us with a few more, Will, please. The president has to meet with evil people. 45 kissed their ass and did their bidding. W literally kissed them. Grow up. Focus. The Republicans are dismantling <laughs> democracy. Thank you and good night. <laughs> so that's him weighing in on Biden's uh, current trip abroad, I, I guess. 45 is an unhinged, violent maniac. P.S. The media still loves him and will drag Biden till the end of time. The at GOP still support him unequivocally. Dear bros and brochettes. Careful what company you keep. <laughs> Brochettes is a new one. Maybe that's a K-Hive thing. If uh, Greg Proops coined it, I'm actually kind of impressed. So, yeah, his, his Twitter's... <laughs> the, the range is somewhat limited, I think. His Twitter is very funny because it goes back and forth between <laughs> tweets like that and also just him on tour, like doing, doing Whose Line Is It Anyway live. His profile picture is him in a Biden-Harris mask. His cover photo is Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi giving each other an arm bump at the State of the Union address. What's so great about that is not only that he has them in the photo, but that they're also following COVID safety protocol in the photo. It's it's. Pr- 
perfect. And his pinned tweet is a picture of a little iron-on button that says, feminist as fuck. <laughs> and I, I think I was trying to analyze why is it that I find Greg Proop so funny and a lot of people like him just not that interesting. And I think it basically comes down to the fact that he was on Whose Line Is It Anyway? <laughs> I, I, You know, I grew up, I used to see him on TV all the time, constantly see him like, uh, uh, here's a pool noodle. What number of things can you do with a pool noodle? Oh, oh, you turned it into a dick. Of course you did. And now he's just on Twitter being like, protect black women. <laughs> I'm imagining uh, the Whose Line Is It Anyway cast uh, on the road. And yeah, he's and he's constantly creating problems by bringing up politics and they're all rolling their eyes. Not unlike a certain movie we watched this week. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> by the way, I encourage you to just Google image search Greg Proops and you'll see him constantly doing this like crooked glasses, uh, one eyebrow raised pose. He's like, a bit of a bit of a rake, is he? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So I don't know how you've been since I last saw you. I actually went to see a pretty good political movie this week. A, a All right, hit me with a, it. A pretty good political movie. It was called The Battle of Algiers. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you've seen it. Uh, I went to see it at the TIFF Lightbox, and I'd never actually seen it before. The Battle of Algiers from 1966. Uh, have you have you seen it, Luke? Yeah, a long time ago in, in film studies class. One of those movies that I had never seen for the simple reason that it's never the most inviting evening's watch. You know, you could uh, be watching some piece of crap or you could be watching a documentary like portrait of the Algerian revolution and uh, I always went for some stupid piece of crap instead anyway a really great movie they did the whole movie to make it look like newsreel style there are times watching it where you think oh my god how is this not a newsreel just so convincing thing I liked most about it is there are scenes in it I mean it's it's a movie that's unabashedly anti-colonial pro-Algerian but there are scenes in it of people on the Algerian side just bombing public places and you follow them planting bombs in bars at, at racetracks And the way that the movie depicts it is neither glamorizing it nor condemning it it's it's not doing some disingenuous stuff about oh but uh this is this is them going too far you know but the movie's also not saying that it's bad which is which is the really impressive thing it what the movie's saying is this is a world of violence there is state violence that is inflicted on these people all the time and now they're fighting back with guerrilla violence and whether or not this is a good thing is irrelevant this is just a world of violence I cannot imagine anywhere where a movie like this would be allowed to be made today. Highly recommend The Battle of Algiers, if, like me, you'd been putting it off for most of your life. Because it's also just an incredibly gripping movie, just a scorching piece of work. Well, when you said you'd just seen a great political movie, I thought you were talking about something else. But perhaps we'll, we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. Um, I didn't have anything I wanted to talk about off the top, uh, because I really am pining to discuss our movie this week. But I did just want to make a small announcement about my book. I started getting messages from people this week uh, who'd pre-ordered The Dead Set. Those pre-orders, I understand, have started shipping. There have been a lot of delays with this book. Uh, I regret that. Gotten a lot of messages from people over the past couple months who've thought that their copy uh, had gotten lost in the mail or something like that. I think we're going to have an official release date sometime in September. I'll have more on that soon. But if you pre-ordered The Dead Center, you should have your copy soon. And if you haven't pre-ordered The Dead Center, what what are you doing? Go and and get it right now. Go support your esteemed co-host's first book. And perhaps when we're close to the release date, uh, we can actually talk about the book a bit. Well, I can see you're chomping at the bit to talk about the movie, so let's get into it. Our movie on this episode is a 2007 film starring Anna Paquin and 
podcast returning champion. <laughs> you may forget that years ago we talked about Rat Race, Brecken Meyer, and the movie is called Blue State. I want to make a solemn promise. Hi, I'm with the Kerry campaign. If George Bush gets elected president for another four years, then I will move to Canada. I'm voting for Bush. You are? Uh, Canada. John is keeping his promise. My moving to Canada is a protest against the recently re-elected administration. What about you? Why do you want to go? Oh, I'm with you. The dude lied to us. There's people dying over there for no reason, and then he gets re-elected? Exactly. I could leave tomorrow. I can't believe she's hot. I'm going up there to make a political statement. And you're really going to give up your American citizenship? That's my plan. Chloe is keeping her distance. We only have rooms available with one king-size bed. King's pretty big. Let's get two rooms. Yeah, I mean, I was already Breckenpilled before we watched this movie. Like Rat Race and like Road Trip, uh, this is this is very much a a road movie. I like to think of this as the the third installment in the in the, in the Breckenmeyer Road trilogy. I like to imagine. I like to imagine. You mean Rat Race and Road Trip? <laughs> well, I guess I think uh, maybe Road Trip is the first one, That's and then right. isn't isn't Amy Smart also in uh, Rat Race? That's true. And so that's just the same character. That's just where they go to uh, next. Can I just say you bring up the movie Road Trip a lot in casual conversation? <laughs> I know it was very important for you growing up. Well, I, I'm 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 Breckenpilled. I already told you. Was that the first example of nudity you ever saw in a film? I mean, either that or probably like one of the American Pies. I mean, you know. Titanic? You never saw Titanic? I actually never, I never saw Titanic uh, in full. But, you know, all the boys in my class turned 11 at once and, you know, we had... And that was the movie. That was the one that just happened to be playing at a birthday party. And ever since then, it's lodged in your brain like a silver bullet that they can't remove. But I like to imagine that that's the first in the trilogy. All three of those movies take place in the same universe. And this is the uh, this is the conclusion. Well, we had a few suggestions to talk about this movie. It's a movie that neither of us had ever heard of. The general logline of the movie is that Breckenmeyer plays a liberal who moves to Canada after George W. Bush is reelected in 2004. I didn't quite know what to expect. And I'm just going to say right off the top, Luke and I have watched a lot of movies together. I don't know if we've ever had a more tense viewing experience, a more, I don't think we've ever had a viewing experience where we were less on the same page. And it's not that either of us think the movie was good. Not Neither of us thought the movie was particularly good, but Luke was watching it delighted. He was clapping like a seal. He was lapping it up. He was like, this is the ultimate Michael and us movie. And I was sitting there bored out of my mind, totally unmoved by all the things that he was delighted. It, it was so great because for the first 20 minutes, like I was, I was laughing at the movie and Will was just remaining totally serious. And he's like, he's like, I don't think it's particularly bad. I'm, I'm willing to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with the movie. And then a few minutes well, later. Well, hang on. I didn't say that. <laughs> I, I want to set the record straight. I didn't say I was with the movie, but I did say I don't think it's particularly bad. For the first 20 minutes, I thought, oh, this is just a mediocre indie. But what you were really going after, <laughs> what you were loving, were all the references to 2004 things. Like, there's a point <laughs> there's a point where Breckenmeyer mentions daily costs. There's a point where oh, he mentions Wonkat. There's a Fahrenheit 9-11 reference. They're driving, they're driving down the road, and they're listening to Air America and the Majority Report. They're listening to Janine Garofalo 
Garoppolo on the majority report. You were loving this. How did you not love this? This is the most, it's just this potpourri of like lib references from 2004. I, I, it was incredible. I live in a potpourri of lib references from 2004. It's called the Michael and Us podcast. To see these things that I think about every week anyway, aggregated <laughs> together. You remember those like parody movies that used to come out? Epic movie, disaster movie, where they would have a Napoleon Dynamite character show up and he wouldn't do anything and the whole joke was just that you recognize napoleon dynamite that's how i feel about this it's like yeah i know what daily cost is i know what blogs are i know what fahrenheit 911 is just hearing them mentioned doesn't uh, delight me or move me at all i just think i guess like you weren't you you weren't in the trenches in 2004 because for me okay, like hang on no hang on i was on morewatch.com every day battling with conservatives so don't fucking tell me i wasn't in the trenches now uh, i'm not sure which one of our listeners it was one of our patreon subscribers recommended this movie it might have been michael carroll i know that uh, michael shared the trailer with us uh, if it was someone else or if multiple people recommended this movie sorry i can't credit you all but but on behalf of at least uh you know this this co-host of the michael and us podcast thank you this was truly a perfect movie in fact i will go uh, as far as saying that uh, i mean to me this is just canonical this is a canonical oh michael and us movie <laughs> i'm not just saying that because I'm a committed Breckenhead. This movie, you know, belongs in the canon of uh, Swing Vote, Man of the Year, the documentaries of Alexandra Pelosi, the films of Michael Moore. This is in that tier for me. I, no, to me, the movie doesn't have the same blood in its veins that some of those ones do. I mean, Alexandra Pelosi is like, that's true liberal camp. And this is just, this is a mediocre indie that just has some liberal sprinkles on it. I don't know. See, I, I disagree because- uh, You know what? I'm overstating it. It is a, it is a very liberal film. It is a very lib movie. I, I disagree on the, uh, on the question of whether the film is camp or not. That's what I liked about it so much because this film has such particular aspirations uh, and importantly They're not even high aspirations, right? The stakes of this movie are so low and then even with uh, the stakes being so low The execution is is simultaneously sort of so weird and mediocre and kitschy But then also so self-serious at the same time for me just the ironic enjoyment was off the charts And I'm quite perplexed by your reaction to it. I'll also say in the interest of full disclosure <laughs> I was very much campaigning for this to be the episode where we watched The Killing of America <laughs> from, I think, 1981 or 82, the very depressing exploitation documentary about uh, violence in America. And I think I was hyping myself up for an experience like that, just a deeply unpleasant, let's watch a lot of footage of assassinations and, and serial killers and that sort of thing. But Luke wasn't in the headspace for something that heavy. So instead, we watched this granola bar of a film that, as I said, left me totally unmoved. Instead of police violence and murder, you got to watch old stock footage of John Kerry. You come on, you didn't love that? Revisiting that bundle of charisma. Oh, goodness. Getting I to spend some time with the only Democratic presidential contender to lose the popular vote since 1988. I haven't seen enough John Kerry on this fucking podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Something I'll say also off the top, I was interested in this movie a little bit just because it is an American movie about Canada. I, I happened to record an episode of the Talking Simpsons podcast this week, and the episode that we watched was a season 13 episode called The Bart Wants What It Wants. 
Simpsons, which if you're Canadian, you'll remember that's the episode where the Simpsons go to Canada. It's funny because I'm not sure that I ever saw it. You heard the hype though, right? Well, that's what I was going to say. What I remember was, you know, all the ads for it, where it's like the Simpsons go to Toronto or something. And then there's just, I don't know, like a two second clip of Homer reacting to something stereotypically Canadian or something like that. You could just feel the disappointment across the country the next morning (laughs) after that air. You could feel like the energy on the playground was not where it should have been. Yeah, it it, it flopped like uh, those shows Conan O'Brien did from Quebec, where he just insulted the Quebecois. Okay, to be clear, Conan O'Brien did those shows at the Royal Alex Theater in Toronto. And uh, well, presumably that's what contributed to the offense. Yeah. But I mean, not to get into the weeds of this, wasn't that he like went around the streets of Montreal or something? Yeah, I'll I'll tell you, this is a bit of a digression. But in 2003 or 2004, Conan O'Brien came to Toronto to do a week of shows. I think he might have been paid by the government to do it because Toronto was hit very hard with a disease called SARS that really shut down a lot of our industries. Free trade in action, folks. We're we're subsidizing uh, American late night hosts to come up here and perform. So yeah, having Conan O'Brien on TV was was Toronto saying to the world, we're back. SARS isn't an issue anymore. Look, Conan O'Brien's here. Yeah, and you can come and see Limp Biscuit uh, open for the Rolling Stones in in Toronto. That was another big thing. <laughs> Sars <that> stock. <laughs> Conan O'Brien did a week of shows where he had Canadian guests on. So it was like Jim Carrey and Mike Myers. And I believe Stompin' Tom Connors was on to do the good old <laughs> hockey game. And I also remember all of his monologue jokes were Canada themed. So there was a joke about Don Cherry and stuff like that. And I remember those episodes had a week of breathless front page coverage in the newspapers of being like, and then he said a joke about Don Cherry. I bet the viewers in Wyoming didn't know who that was. You know, it was that kind of tone. But yes. The character of Triumph the Insult Comic Dog did a segment interviewing people on the streets where he said something uh, uh, not very kind about French Canadians. Because Triumph the Insult Comic Dog, he's... He's a bit of an edgelord. He's he's not one for political correctness. And it did get Conan and the gang in trouble. Conan had to do an apology. And I think now that's the thing that those broadcasts are best remembered for. (laughs) For all that breathless front page coverage, for all of Stompin' Tom Connors being on American TV, the only thing anyone remembers remembers is Triumph the Insult Comic Dog being racist against the Quebecois. This was one of those big, you know, uh, international incidents, like when uh, Billy Bob Thornton insulted a, a prominent Canadian arts host, a since disgraced prominent Canadian arts host, but by uh, saying something about how Canadian audiences were very reserved. This is when, you know, Billy Bob Thornton was on tour with some kind of like, I don't know, novelty hillbilly band or something he had, and he, and he described Canadian audiences as mashed potatoes with no gravy, and then people People showed up after this, you know, after he'd, he'd slighted us on our public broadcaster uh, with signs that said, like, here's your gravy. And they and they shut down the tour. That was a proto viral moment where the, the aforementioned disgraced talk show host, I think his lead question to Billy Bob Thornton was, so is is music your first love? And Billy Bob Thornton was like, would you ask that to Tom Petty? He, well, he described it in his introduction um, as like a hobby. And then Billy Bob Thornton was like, yeah, really upset about that. Yeah. And, you know, would you ask Tom Petty that or something? And then, yeah, the whole thing, you know, was written up as this moment of sort of committed Canadian reserve prevailing over Yankee hubris or something because, you know, the... And then like so much about this country, the uh, the placid surface was hiding something horrific underneath. Yeah, uh, which was actually that people were very upset that Billy Bob Thornton <laughs> uh, was, was rude to a CBC host. Oh, no, I was thinking of what that aforementioned host was doing in his private life. 
life. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll let people Google it. So yeah, Blue State, the whole reason I brought up that Simpsons thing was because in that episode of The Simpsons where they go to Toronto, there's a scene where the Simpsons take a photo outside the monument for Dodgers of foreign wars. That's the gag. And it was interesting watching that as a Canadian because you think, wow, here in Canada, we have a whole history. In the 60s and 70s, there were all these things happening, like the Quiet Revolution. There was a there's the FLQ crisis. There was the whole debate about whether or not we should have a flag. You know, these vital moments in our national self-identity. And the United States knows nothing about any of that. What they know is that during those years, Canada is where draft dodgers would go. <laughs> and that's their whole conception of pretty much the second half of the 20th century in Canada. (laughs) And it was interesting to watch that episode of The Simpsons and see it through foreign eyes. And it's also interesting to watch this movie Blue State because it's an extension of that impulse to the United States. What Canada was in 2004 was a place that apparently had universal health care, was apparently nicer and cleaner and friendlier in some way. And it's the place that liberals were threatening to move as if they could just waltz in and pass the point system if George W. Bush was reelected. Yeah, now I will say to this movie's credit, and I'm not being ironic here, I think it does uh, dissent a little bit from kind of the standard way that Canada would be portrayed in a movie like this. This is a movie with definite lib politics to an extent, but when they actually get to Canada, it turns out that the Canadians are actually kind of a cultural chauvinist and they really don't like the United States and they're really smug. So whether intentionally or not, I think it actually does manage to satirize a certain kind of annoying Canadian lib of a sort, which was very big circa, you know, 2004. And I know because I was one. Brecken Meyer stars as John Logue, a fanatical John Kerry supporter and liberal blogger. (laughs) He has a blog called The Donkey Revolution. He lives in San Francisco. He's been campaigning vigorously for Kerry. He even went to Ohio in the lead up to the election, and he gained some local notoriety for appearing on the news, vowing, swearing on his life that he would move to Canada if George W. Bush was reelected. As the film opens, George W. Bush has just been reelected. And not only that, but Breckenmeyer's life is crumbling around him. He's been so focused on the campaign that his girlfriend has drifted away. And yeah, go- his, his crippling libitude has cost him both his job and his girlfriend. And he's being harangued by his friends. So are you going to move to Canada? You promised. You swore on your life. You were on the news. You were on the news. And then he realizes this is an opportunity for him to actually live his politics. This is an opportunity for him to take a stand. The so-called draft dodgers of the 1960s, they actually lived their politics. They went to Canada. They uprooted their whole lives. Well, he's going to do that now, and he's going to make a statement. And can I just say, uh, you get to see Brecken Meyer's kind of his surroundings when he's at home before he leaves. And all around him, his walls are decorated uh, exactly like my locker in the ninth grade. Uh, You know, he's got signs that say, like disaster, racism, class, and empire, Bush's America. He's got a framed uh, picture of that quote that's like, never uh, doubt that a small group of committed citizens, yada, yada, yada. And on the face of it, you might think, well, those are somewhat disparate objects. But as somebody who very much had the same kind of affectations as, you know, a 14-year-old or whatever, all of this scanned is very accurate to me because at the time, uh, there was nothing incompatible, or so it seemed, of being, you know, a big Carrie Edwards guy and also having, like, 
like a Che Guevara poster or something. As with, you know, the post-2016 resistance to Trump, there was a really kind of strange and disparate pastiche of kind of extreme centrism and, I don't know, the the affectations, at least, of radicalism. So uh, I actually thought this was pretty accurate. So he does some research online and comes into contact with a Winnipeg group known as Mary a Canadian, run by a liberal woman who has taken it upon herself to act as a sort of asylum, a one-woman asylum for Americans who want to leave the country after the re-election of Bush. Breckenmeyer also seeks a travel companion to help with driving and expenses, and he finds one in the form of Anna Paquin, who plays a mysterious traveler. We find out over the course of the movie that she is, in fact, enlisted in the U.S. Army and is hoping to flee the country before she has to return for another tour of duty. Yeah, and it's great because uh, Breckenmeyer's libness is so annoying that at one point she's like, ah, I might just, I might just go back. I might just go back into the service. I don't know if I'm going to cross the border. There is some tension between the two characters throughout the trip because Breckenmeyer is a true lib. He's got a CD case full of Bushisms that he's created. He plays them in the car. You remember Bushisms, folks. Uh, <laughs> they misunderestimated him. Anna Paquin claims to have worked for the DNC during the last election. However, she's not as strident in her politics as Breckenmeyer is. And in <laughs> fact, she becomes increasingly wary and skeptical of his mission. She doesn't think it's a great statement. She doesn't think it's particularly meaningful for one not really public figure to emigrate from the country in political protest. Yeah, and it's funny because he is so annoying. Like when they're first on the road, he shows her that he's made this elaborate travel guide that's got, you know, all of the gas stations that they're able to stop at where they can buy ethical gas. You know, he drives past a gas station somewhere in Oregon because, uh, you know, he wants to get to the one that's owned by a a Venezuelan uh, gas company because he wants to avoid oil from the Middle East. And then he says, Chavez is no saint, but at least he cares about his people. Well, this is why I don't think the movie is quite as exciting as you do, because the the movie is (laughs) a little more clear eyed than you might expect about this character. Like he's a sympathetic character. I think the movie broadly shares his politics, but it also recognizes that he's he's a little bit absurd. And if the movie has any message, it's basically, hey, uh, tone it down a little. Don't, don't be so annoying. Well, we're jumping to the end here, but Will, that is why this is the perfect Michael and Us movie, is because it has all these layers of liberal adornment, and then at the end of it, the message is just politics. What a concept, folks. You gotta... <laughs> It's like, it may be annoying, it may drive you crazy, but at the end of the day, you just gotta... But at the end of the day, you, you don't do it like this guy, do it another way. Like, the movie at the end is pro-politics, but it's just, <laughs> don't be annoying about politics. That's what it's saying. So, on the road, we uh, stop at a couple of places. So a l- little bit of sexual tension, I would say. Okay, well, I think the reason the movie ultimately doesn't work more than any ideological reason is that the central relationship doesn't work. I mean, the Brackenmeyer character truly is annoying and she spends most of the movie justifiably repulsed and annoyed by him and then in the last act when there has to be the inevitable turn where they become attracted to each other and fall in love you just don't buy it the groundwork hasn't been laid there's been no chemistry for the rest of the movie sorry folks doa this is the reason why you've never heard the movie the, ro- the romance doesn't work okay what's al- what's also amazing about this movie is i don't think it had a, a huge budget um so it really oh does- no <laughs> 
<laughs> so, it, so it really does have these uh, these indie movie vibes. It really has that indie aesthetic. It has little details, certain camera angles, just bits of cinematography that really don't... Well, you mean the handheld kind of grainy look that it has? Yeah, overcast. things that just wouldn't fit in, you know, a movie like Swing Vote. And then just little little shots and moments that without meaning to manage to be really camp. Like the scene where they first go to a hotel and they have separate rooms and Breck and Meyer is watching the naked news and then he just starts touching himself. It's a movie that's not really a drama. It's not really a comedy either. It's just kind of a, a, it, a souffle that doesn't rise. It, it oscillates. Yeah, that's perfect. It os- yeah, it oscillates wildly in tone from these really gimmicky sort of goofy moments. In the third act, there's some stuff that happens that's just so implausible, really doesn't make sense to these totally self-serious moments that want you to take everything uh, really, really somberly. And just like none of it works. There's another really weird little detail where further down the road, when they're actually sharing a hotel room that has two beds and the movie's kind of like, oh, are they going to hook up? What's going to happen? Meyer goes into the bathroom and you see him like, do like a hotel like toothbrushing where he puts the toothpaste on his finger and you know he's trying he's trying to freshen up so he'll be more attractive to Anna Paquin and then you see him grab some toilet paper and like stick it down the front of his pants and sort of like yeah he's washing a stick I mean <laughs> that that wasn't particularly uh, strange to me that that would <laughs> that he would do that it's very strange that it's in the movie well it's it's supposed to be funny it's supposed to be a little like comic beat I don't know I actually thought that was one of the jokes that landed for me I agree I'm saying it landed i'm trying to sell you on the movie i'm trying to sell you on its weird campness no i mean that's not camp that's a joke that actually works that's the that's that's the opposite of camp that was a successful comic moment in a movie that had very few of them i i I also think just on top of the movie's other failures the travelogue road movie aspect doesn't work and this i think is partly due to the film's low budget it obviously didn't shoot in most of the locations where it's sat i think one way the movie could have been saved is if you actually went to a number of different states and you got a little bit of local flavor in each state and then across the border you got a bit of real local flavor in Canada but the movie doesn't really have the resources for that. They have a long way to go. Welcome to Canada. (laughs) Before they understand each other. Hi, I'm Gloria O'Neill, president of Marriott Canadian. I don't know if I'm ready to do this. Isn't this what you came for? John and I went down to City Hall to get our marriage license. You're not making some big statement by coming up here. You're just some big liberal all talk and no action. We haven't talked yet about the kind of central uh, moment of act two, which is when, you know, they're driving through Oregon or maybe it's Washington. You've already suppressed this, I can tell. You'd hoping I'd forget about it. But it turns out Breckenmeyer's parents live there and he's, you know, a little bit estranged from them. But, you know, he has to stop because they're passing right through Spokane or wherever they live. They got to support our troops sign on the front lawn. So, you know, you know where this is going. Uh Oh, Republican parents. And they get in, they're talking to mom and then dad comes in and he comes out guns a blazing. He, he's clearly a talk radio guy. He's clearly a Limbaugh guy. He's laying down all the talking points about the war, the economy, whatever. And again, this is very authentically 2004 he's saying stuff like you know why can't you just let the president do his job and then Brecken Meyer is retorting dad there's nothing more patriotic than dissenting from your government especially when they're wrong it's like <laughs> if you ever saw that TV debate between Michael Moore and Bill O'Reilly from the time it's it's that <laughs> what do you think happens they fight and debate so much that eventually the father is driven insane he starts weeping he starts shaking he gets put into another place 
Now, actually, what would probably happen is that that would happen to Brecken Meyer, who probably doesn't really know what he believes. So in real life, I think the father would hand the guy's ass to him. <laughs> in this movie, Brecken Meyer argues his father into such a corner that his father is reduced to a sputtering mess. And then we he starts crying. <laughs> and then we find out we see the picture on the mantle. Not only does Brecken Meyer have a brother who's in Iraq, but we find out later his brother died in Iraq. So ultimately, that's the pathology behind conservatism in this movie. <laughs> They've got Stockholm syndrome, you know? Although possibly to push back on that a little bit, I would say the movie has a very kind of 2004 lib thing where it's sort of like, well, we support the troops like even harder. Because we don't want them to go yeah. die. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, it's definitely not anti-troop in any kind of way. I definitely did groan when this scene came out because this is the scene that's in all these movies. It's like the scene in Scent of a Woman or whatever, where it's like, <laughs> oh yeah, the, the eccentric character goes home and then you find out the buried secrets. You find out the, the hidden pathologies. And this is the scene that just instantly adds depth and texture to the character. Every, every movie has this fucking scene, the going home scene. So I, I want to say uh, to Will's credit, even though he did not enjoy this movie clearly uh, as much as I did, he did basically have its number. He had about, you know, 75% of its number 20 minutes in. Because your take on it was that it was going to end with, uh, you know, they wouldn't get to Canada and Anna Paquin was going to in some way, you know, through through, rom- through his romance with uh, Anna Paquin, he was going to discover that, you know, actually America is wonderful and, you know, he, he, he... Worth fighting for. And it's worth fighting for. And the thing is, that's almost exactly right. Uh, the only thing you were wrong about, the only detail is it turns out that much of Act 3 does take place in Canada. And would you believe it, folks, when they get to the border, and I predicted this, and this is where I got the movie right. When they get to the border, all of the characters start talking like, ootin' a boot. Everyone's ootin' and a bootin'. Everyone's saying A. You know, the, the border guy, uh, Brecken Myers, bantering with him. And he says like, you know, to this customs agent, uh, is American beer uh, illegal here? And he's like, no, but it tastes like piss, eh? Or something like that. And everybody talks like that. Inexplicably, uh, maybe because the shooting budget was cheaper there, uh, the, the lady Gloria, who runs this, you know, marriage asylum seeker website or whatever, she lives in Winnipeg. So having crossed the border into British Columbia, they don't go to Vancouver. They drive um, all the way to Manitoba. That's a long drive, by the way. That's half the continent. It's really, really far. And then when they get there, the Canadians in Winnipeg, I mean, this is where the movie just descended into total madness for me. This is where it became completely impossible to take seriously as something that took itself seriously, if that makes sense. Up till that point, much of it had just felt like a sort of slightly awkward, but basically straight-laced kind of indie movie. And it becomes uh, just like carnival-esque at this point. For some reason, these Canadians in Winnipeg, like Winnipeg and kind of the sensibilities of the people there, I mean, they're like people in Portland or Vermont or something. Like, I mean, there are uh, American stereotypes about Canadians at play here, but a lot of it is not really able to sort of get beyond the existing horizons Americans have about extremely liberal people in their own country and what they're like. So in the last act of the movie, Brecken Meyer is fending off the advances of the woman who runs this marry a Canadian commune. She has her sights on him to marry. She's a, she's a little bit older than him. You say fending off, I mean, not with much success as it turns out. Well, well it's heavily implied that they have sex the first night he's there because he's in a bit of a low ebb in his rapport with Anna Paquin, but then we find out later that he was actually too drunk to have sex, which renders him pure enough to pursue a relationship <laughs> with Anna Paquin. 
Anyway, through various complicated circumstances, they leave that little hippie commune. Uh, there's one guy there who wants Anna Paquin to go with her to literally assassinate the president. Yeah, this is where it just gets completely ridiculous. Although this this stretch... It's of, not even played for comedy, that bit. Yeah, there's, there's no comedy at all. And inexplicably, like all the characters in this sequence are all just like these cookie cutter sort of paint by the numbers hippie characters. And yet this guy is like a character from that scene in Forrest Gump where just all the different supposedly violent new left groups are all in the same room together. He's like a character from that scene. Regardless, there continues to be a, a pretty good stream of like 2004 lib references. There's You get to hear Gloria at one point, who's this woman they're staying with, go off about how, you know, well, uh, people used to vote Democrat for economic reasons, but now they're voting Republican because of so-called moral values. Again, I don't know how you didn't love all that stuff. Uh, this was just uh, tickling me so much. Again, <laughs> because I, I I live in it every day. For a lot of this section of the movie, I was thinking, God, why don't they uh, go to one of the three cities where most of Canada actually lives? And sure enough, at this point, Breckenmeyer does decide, hey, let's go to Vancouver instead. So they make the drive from Winnipeg to Vancouver. It's prob- probably took them a week. We I mean, don't sense that. I mean, I don't think they actually ever get to Vancouver, right? Because they're driving across Saskatchewan. And don't they where... get to BC at least, though? Well, they end up getting to BC see, I think, only to reach the film's climax at the border. But on the way, there's one final encounter, which ends up uh, being a big part of the film's politics. So they somehow wind up at a cabin in the woods that's run by this sort of mountain man character who they find out (laughs) was a draft dodger from the United States who came up during the Vietnam War. Now, Breckenmeyer is very admiring of him. He says, oh, man, your generation, you were a conscientious objector. You lived your politics. You came up here. And this man, this mountain man, actually regrets the decision. He says, did I? Did I really? Yeah, this this mountain man who uh, lives in the woods on the prairies, which is definitely a thing. This is what people <laughs> escaping the Vietnam War did. They uh, they found a cabin in the woods. I guess that's the, the two options are you marry a Canadian or you go live in the woods and hope Border Patrol doesn't find you. And you know what I really liked about this world-weary former draft dodger who, yeah, inexplicably just, you know, builds himself a home somewhere on the prairies and stays there. You know, he's really... Never attempts to just return. (laughs) Yeah, he's really unsatisfied with his life. He he makes craft beer. He makes something called the Strawberry Statement because he helped draft something of the same name uh, back when he was at Columbia. Uh, But despite his background, despite the fact that he is a Yank, he's just sort of become a Canadian. Like, he has all these same affectations. So wait, he was at Columbia. If he went straight from there, that means he crossed almost the entire continent to, to get to Saskatchewan. I I would like just a little bit more about what his tangled journey was. All that he didn't go to northern Quebec or something. Anyway. (laughs) But so then we reach uh, the emotional They should have made him from Berkeley is what I'm saying. (laughs) Would have made more sense. So yeah, the emotional climax. (laughs) We get to the emotional climax of the film. Obviously, staying with this uh, kind of weird hermit guy, drinking all of his uh, craft beer, Anna Paquin and Breck admire, you know, they they overcome their differences. Uh, They spend the night together. They're divided on what to do next. She wants to go back. She says, you know, uh, I have to go back and face the music. You know, I can't just run from my life. And, you know, if I'm lucky, I'll just get a dishonorable discharge because don't forget, she's a troop. Breck admire, you know, 
he's going to stay. Uh, so he drives her to the border. She walks across the border. He turns around to drive, presumably to Vancouver or something. But of course, he can't do it. He's crossing the border. He's talking to the customs agent. And what should he see? She's being led away in handcuffs by the U.S. customs agent. She's taken away in slow motion uh, and they exchange, you know, a furtive glance. And you may think that's the end. But then a couple months later, we rejoin Breckenmeyer as he's waiting outside a federal penitentiary for Anna Paquin to be released. She comes out and what does she see? She sees that Breckenmeyer is running for Senate. Yeah, it wasn't really clear what was going on here for a sec, but he gives her like a campaign pin. And I'm thinking, well, that doesn't make sense. The election's over. But then as they're driving away in the final shot of the movie, uh, he's got a bumper sticker on his Volvo that says, Logue for State Senate. So there's the message of the film. So there's the message of the film right there. Don't go to Canada. Stay and fight. But please, for the love of God, be a little less annoying about it. If you really want the donkey revolution to happen, just don't be a Carrie Edwards nerd all of the time, please. And, you know, I I think I can get behind that.